everybody to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham Deweese, back with Brian the Soul Man Soul, like in the damn Dirty Doug Matt Page on the producer boards. And we have a very special guest this week. One, Jeff Baker. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing okay. I, I don't have to work tonight. And uh, so this is fun. Just sitting around talking sports will be a nice relief from what I've been doing for the last uh, several consecutive weeks. Although I love covering sports. It's just, uh, you know, <laughs> get, getting a night off here and there is very important for your mental health. That's fantastic. And you said that uh, the last, uh, before the show, you said that the last couple of weeks you had been traveling. Where had you just, been? Yeah, just a bit. I, I think in the last couple of weeks alone, I've been to uh, St. Louis, Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, St. Louis, Chicago, Minneapolis, Dallas, uh, Vancouver. I'm trying to think just uh, since last, uh, for what are we today? Thursday? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, so, it's Thursday. So last, last week I was in, um, in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, covered a game Friday night in St. Paul, a game Saturday night in Dallas, flew home for one night, then went to Vancouver uh, for the night, covered the cracking game the next night, then came back yesterday, covered the cracking game here last night. And uh, so tonight's off. It's been, a, it's been a busy time. It's fun. It gives you energy. Um, when I used to do baseball, it was a little more uh, – you'd get to go to a city for three or four nights, sometimes five nights at a time. So it gave you a little bit of a chance to catch your breath, enjoy the city. This time I flew into Dallas. I think I got there at four o'clock on Saturday, covered the game and was out of there by six the next day. So um, it, it's a little bit of a different experience doing hockey than, than baseball. Fantastic. Now, is that tip, is that typical of the hockey season or is, or has uh, the pandemic created a issue this year? No, it's, it's pretty typical. The most nights you'll spend in any city, it will be two. You fly in and then you do the morning skate before the game the next day. So you need to fly in the day before. When it's a, you know, especially when it's a faraway game, I've, I've gone to games in California, like the day of, or Arizona the day of, which is fairly easy, but anywhere else you really have to fly in the night before. And then, uh, I, and I like that. I love getting to see a city, at least for uh, a little bit, have dinner there, uh, walk around, try to try to get an early walk around, take a look at the place. Um, but I, I don't like it when you're only there for one night and really don't get to experience any of it. So I'm still getting used to that from the hockey side of things. And uh you know, I, I, I guess when I get some backup help um, coming up next season, which I'm going to, I'll, I'll make sure that, that these like back-to-back games, I'll try to split them up a little bit just so so I don't have to keep rushing off everywhere. Fantastic. And of course, Jeff, you're the uh, beat writer for the Seattle Times, right? And I yeah. still am. Yeah, last I checked. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you never know. You never and, know this business. <laughs> and uh, Brian, Matt, and I, we're all Everett Silvertips fans, and we know about their teams constantly on the move, constantly on the bus. And, you know, heck, they're all 17 years old, so that's probably a thrill for them. So I can only imagine for you. Oof, that's That's got to be rough. It's fun. Look, I'm not complaining. I mean, there, there are a lot worse things you could be doing for a living. Um, it, yeah. It's just this time of year in any sport you cover, it, t- it tends to get tiring um, towards the end. Uh, and I'm sure like by this time next week, after I've had a couple of nights sleep, I'll be longing to get going again and, and go someplace new. So um, it's, it's just the way it goes. Excellent. It, it's a lot of fun. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And we want to talk cracking with you, uh, but we also want to talk a little bit about your past because you're uh, you're a staple here in the Seattle scene and for sports. And uh, you have a little bit of a history before uh, your most recent position. Uh, go, going back, you were actually, uh, you're, you were with the Montreal Gazette and uh, back, back there in Canada. And, um, I had a question for you because yeah. you were there when 
the Expos were at their height in the 90s, and then that city got their team torn away from us, from them. And then we, you know, as Supersonics fans, you were here in the city as we got our teams, you know, our Supersonics taken away from us. Are there any through lines that you've seen, you know, in your your personal experience? You know, like, are, are there any ownership issues or management issues that just you're now attuned to like, Oh my gosh, this is not a team that's going to succeed. It's the one thing I've learned in sports is it's always about the money, no matter what anybody else says, does whatever. It's always, it always comes down to the money. So follow the money and, and you'll see, you'll see what's going to happen next. And uh, the, the thing with Montreal was uh, there were a whole circumstance of, of things that happened going back, trying to remember now going back about 10 years before the Expos left town. So in 1994, the Expos had the best team in baseball. They were, forget about the Atlanta Braves streak of whatever it was making the playoffs. The Expos were literally kicking their butts that year, all season long. And they had something like a six game lead on them uh, on August 12th when the baseball strike hit. And, and that, I mean, that Expo team was loaded with all-stars at every position. They were getting crowds out, you know, rabid crowds every night, really intimidating crowds because it was an indoor stadium and, um, they just made a lot of noise. Montreal crowds are some of the loudest in sports. And, and so they were, you know, there's no doubt in my mind they were going to win the World Series that year. You know, it's not, they would have at least made the World Series that year, probably won it. They, they, you know, Pedro Martinez is like a third or fourth starter on that team. So they weren't going to lose to anybody in the playoff, in a playoff series. And so um, they canceled that, pull the rug out from under them. And then, you know, they go through the nonsense of the next year. By then, the Expos have sold off all their good – started selling off all their good players. They sent Marquise Grissom to the Braves, and they win the World Series in 1996 um, – 95, sorry, that, that very year in 95. And, you know, it's frustrating for the fans, and they brought in the wild card the next year. They had the wild card in Montreal back in the 70s, early 80s. They probably would have made the playoffs every year for about three or four consecutive years. But they didn't. Anyway, uh, they made it once in 1981 – lost on, on uh, Rick Monday's home run in the decisive game of the NLCS. They called Blue Monday in Montreal because it happened on a Monday. <laughs> the Sunday game got rained out. And um, so that was, that, that, you know, that was heartbreaking. And then 94, when they're finally going to win it all, that's it. They pull the rug out. People get tired of baseball and all its shtick. By then, you know, the, uh, the, the salary, the, the one thing I did learn there, salary disparities matter in baseball. Awesome. Um, you know, some sports do have a salary cap, like the NFL. They don't have a salary cap in baseball, and it really was starting to hurt even back then. And if you don't have the payroll to compete, it's very difficult, and teams start selling off players. So that was happening in Montreal all through the mid-'90s to late-'90s. People were really ticked off about the strike, and, and the owners basically refused, refused to little cave to any player demands. And um, so then you, come with, you get to the early 2000s, and, uh, you know, there's some dubious moves being made by the owners. And I'm not going to get into that whole thing right we, now, but was yeah, it all you know, money? There, was it all money? There's a lot. Yeah, it's all money. There's a lot of question whether what they were doing was in good faith. They ticked off a lot of the sponsors in the city, a lot of the uh, local media, just with their the way they negotiated rights. And then they ended up moving the team um, down to Miami uh, to become, uh, you know, not they were sorry, they were going, they basically were going to move the team down to Miami, the ownership ends up buying a team down in Miami. There's a whole swap. So the Marlins owners become the Expos owners become the Marlins owners. I can't really get into the whole, the whole story. It goes back years. Uh, and, and finally they end up moving the team to Washington DC in 2004. 
And and by then the narrative was, oh, the Montreal fans don't like baseball. That was ridiculous. They yeah. love baseball there. It was just they would not. One thing the fans would not do is show up to see a team that every single year Bud Seeley kept saying this team is going to be moving somewhere. Uh, it went on for about a six year period. Oh, we're going to relocate the Expos. This is their last season. So what do the fans do? All right. Well, we're not going to go to games. We're going to buy 5000 tickets and that'll be it. And did that and so that, that's where that now. So you learn then that that a lot of stuff that gets said in public uh, for public consumption isn't really true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of PR, a lot of optics. Uh, the bottom line is they wanted Montreal to build a new stadium. The fans said, no, we're stuck with this this billion dollar uh, disaster called Olympic Stadium. We're not building you another one. And, that, par- and that parallels what happened with the Sonics, right? It's right. the whole stadium. Exactly. That's what I was going to get to. Sorry, um, to, sorry to interrupt you there. No, no, that's fine. I, I, I'm a little long winded. My wife, my wife uh, is used to telling me. And, but that's what happened. They said, you know, build a new stadium. And they were going to. They, they were actually getting momentum to build a new, I think it was a $200 million stadium at the time even back in the nineties. And you remember Ken Griffey jr. Um, you know, you know, when, when Edgar gets his hit and junior scores in, in 95 and they basically credit Ken Griffey jr. For saving baseball uh, here in Seattle, because that helped get the stadium done when, when the Mariners ended up making the playoffs in 95, beating the Yankees had the Montreal Expos won the world series in 94. There's no doubt in my mind, they would have found money to build a stadium. They would have gotten a stadium done right in the heart of downtown. And but that didn't happen. All those stadium ideas went poof. The fans say, we're not paying for new stadiums to stay in this sport that, you know, is so lopsided with salaries and doesn't want to contain everything and lets the Yankees win every year. And, and that, that went away. And then Washington DC built a stadium for the nationals. And they said, all right, take them. And they left. And that's, so that's kind of what happened here in Seattle. Uh, nobody said take them with the Sonics, but nobody was going to build the Sonics an arena here with public money, either my, my book that, that, I'm, that we'll talk about it later, I guess, but that's coming out uh, this November is largely, uh, it includes a lot of stuff about the Sonics, a lot of stuff about the arena saga that happened here going on, uh, you know, 15, 20 years, even uh, going back that long. And then led, leads to the creation of the Kraken. So it's not so much a Kraken book as it is a tale of the entire Sonic saga, the Soto saga, arena saga, the key arena saga, and a lot of sagas. And so Montreal's saga was just another one where, where a city stood up and said, no, we're not going to give in a corporate blackmail and build you a, another stadium. Um, and, and they left. And, you know, and here we are all those years later. And I tell, I tell this to Sonics fans all the time. It seems like a long time since they've been gone, and it has been now. But in the long scheme of things, uh, the grand scheme of things, 14 years isn't a long time to wait for a relocated franchise. I mean, the Expos have been gone for 18 years. There's no sign of them coming back anytime soon. Uh, you know, look at the Rams and their move uh, out of L.A. and then back to L.A. Um, it, it's it's it takes a long time. Two decades is, is pretty much the norm for a lot of these relocations. So you just got to be patient. And, uh, you know, sometimes teams come around and, and sometimes they don't. So that's it, it, it's not it's not a pretty saga. Fans don't like to hear that because they're fans. I, I get it. I'm, I was a fan, too. I, I still am a lot of it, but to be a fan, I almost have to suspend my knowledge of what goes on in sports sometimes because uh, a lot of it behind the scenes gets kind of ugly. I think that's directed at me because that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> no, I mean, I get it. Look, look, I get it. Do, do I, do I look back on the expos with fondness? Yeah, it, exactly. I do. It's funny though. I wouldn't have met my wife, Amy, uh, had it not been for the expos moving oh. because, uh, in, in 2004, they moved in 2005. I said, Oh, four, but 2004 was their last season and they were playing trial games in Puerto Rico back at the stadium there. So I was covering the Blue Jays in Toronto. And so we went down for the uh, 
uh, Canada Day weekend uh, series between Montreal and, and Toronto, which is being played in, in Puerto Rico. And I did a story on Carlos Delgado down there, not standing up for God bless America. I mean, he was kind of like the Colin Kaepernick of his day because he was protesting uh, against the war in Iraq and the use of munitions down on the island of Vieques in Puerto Rico. And uh, so he told me this whole thing. I wrote a big story on it and then covered the series. After that, my paper says, hey, stay down there, lie on the beach for two days. So I did. I, I went and enjoyed myself. Uh, two days is always great. It's better than one night, as I said, going into a city. So I've spent two days on the beach and that's where I met my wife. And nice. I met her for like two minutes and then uh, kept in touch. We dated long distance for two years. And that's why I moved out here to Seattle. Oh, wow. And it's all because the Montreal Expos were playing games in Puerto Rico their very last season because Major League Baseball figured, well, we're getting rid of them anyway. Let's let's see how the Puerto Rican market looks for some home games. And uh, yeah, it's a long winded story. That's uh, that's awesome, though. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, um, with my research, I, there's a lot of st- articles that you, uh, you've done, investigative reporting over the years. But the one I'm, question I want to ask is, in 2005, you went to the Dominican Republic to do a story about the younger generation down there. I guess they were juicing. I mean, what, what precipitated that column and what were some of your key findings? Um. Honestly, the key findings were that that a lot of the, unfortunately, Dominican teenagers uh, that were getting into baseball were indeed juicing, and some of them were juicing with drugs that were meant for cows and horses. Oh, wow. Um, because they're not exactly wealthy. They, they couldn't go uh, order them off a catalog somewhere. And, and so um, the one thing you got to understand about the baseball's international system for years and years, it was very unregulated, still is to a large degree. It's more regulated today than before. But the, the whole point of, of, of having that is these players weren't exposed to the draft. Like here, U.S. college kids, Canadian college kids, now, you know, they're subject to the draft. So, so they go into it. You pay them big money, usually, although baseball introduced the slotting system. So you pay them less money in some cases than before. But they're still making big money. But other teams that maybe don't want to do that or didn't qualify would just send, send, open up these camps down in Dominica and they buy players by the, by the truckload. You know, for the same money you'd pay one U.S. college kid in a draft, you were able to pay, um, you get 100 Dominican players, teenagers, and you just sift them all out. And maybe one or two will make it to uh, the minor league system. And if you're lucky, some of them will make it to the majors and some will be superstars. The problem is, in order to get the attention of American scouts, um, they, you, you, these, these are teenage kids. They, they want teenage kids. But you know, they want them to compete with, they, they, they don't want to wait up forever for these guys. So they want them to compete with like 21 year olds, 22. And to get attention, you have to be throwing like a 95 mile an hour fastball. You're not going to be doing it when you're 13, 14 years old. So, so they have these unregulated street dealers down there. that are selling these kids to, to scouts and um, claiming that they're 18 years old. Some of them 17 years old. Some of them are really only, uh, you know, 15, whatever. There, there's a, there's a, sort of a saying that if you're not, if you're not signed by a major league club, by the time you're 18 in Dominican, you're already like over the hill. And so a lot of these kids would juice up in order to um, just, just stay, stay in the mix, so to speak, because the alternative they had was to literally go shine shoes for a living. And that's not a stereotype that that's the reality. I mean, Sammy Sosa was pretty famous for doing that back in the day. And so it was a wild West. And so I went down there, uh, you know, had some locals taking me around, helping me because some of these areas I was going to, you don't necessarily want to be walking around in by yourself. And uh, I was there, I was there for a while and we had a photographer with us and uh, actually one of his his photographs from that was featured in a Ken Burns uh, documentary on uh, baseball. And, uh, you know, I just remember him taking the photo. He sees a kid 
uh, parking his bike in a basically a field a field of uh, cows, and so he jumps out of our cab and just goes and snaps it on the side of the road. It's a great photo, really good photo. And follow up to that. So that article yeah. was that a Seattle Times article or? No, no, that was with the uh, sorry, that was with the Toronto Star. Okay, because I want to go. That, so so go from that, that article, I ended up winning a, an associated. I, I won a national award in Canada for sports oh, wow. writing. And for, for, for the series, and then I won an, uh, it's called Associate, Associated Press Sports Editors Award here uh, in the U.S. So I was the first Canadian writer to win one in the big category. I mean, we were up against the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, ESPN, whatever. And, and so we were the first to win it. And then um, based off of that, just as, as I was about to get the award at a ceremony, they posted on the Associated Press um, not the AP, uh, the APSC sports editor's website. I go to just look at the announcement and I see there's a job opening at the Seattle times. And we've been, <laughs> my wife and I, future wife and I have been trying to figure out ways for me to get to Seattle and work. Cause there, there aren't many baseball jobs here. And lo and behold, uh, Bob Finnegan was retiring and, uh, they posted it. So I applied and it helped when you're winning like a national award or two, it helps you first of all, get the visa to be in this country and, uh, as a Canadian, and it helps you to, actually get hired by the newspaper. And I was fortunate that the, uh, the Times Fan- did. Fantastic. And uh, nice. Brian or Jeff, um, what's the name of that article? I mean, if people wanted to go find it, because I, I now want to I want to read this. Uh, yeah, it was I... called uh, uh, Dominican um, Field of Dreams. I'm trying to remember what it was called. So maybe now just... I can't remember. It goes back too long. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign Matt. Matt, if you could find that so that in our... Uh, Posting, I can use that. It's, it's tough to find it online. The one thing that Star did was they put all their their articles behind behind a paywall, oh. so it's really tough. Okay. If you Google my name and Dominican. Sometimes you'll see it come up on, on a different website, but you can't just go and get past Toronto Star articles without a uh, without subscribing to their library. It's frustrating for me too. Okay, Matt, I got all the hard copies of it. Matt um, will find Matt will find us a free and legal way to find it. One was called Harvesting the Dominican Diamond Mine, which was uh, about the Buscone system, which is those those street agents I was telling you about. Those hus- A lot of them are hustlers, un- unregulated. Uh, so that was it. But the first one was called, uh, oh, Life in Needle Park. That's it. Life in Needle Park. So that was the first one. Life if you Google Needle- me and Life okay. in Needle Park, there might be something online about it. Excellent. Um, uh, yeah, Matt will find that for us. And when I post this, all right. uh, we'll have it for our listeners. Uh, as yeah, no, because I that's definitely- great. That's great. You're going to read it to them on that. You're going to read it out. I will. I'll do a slow and I'll try to do my best. Uh, I'll try to do my best, uh, you know, uh, Darth Vader impression as I'm reading it. You know? Yeah. You're going to do the voices. And everything? I have to do the voices. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you for letting us know about that, Jeff. And we want to switch more to the Kraken right now. Um, like I said, Matt, Brian, and myself, we're Everett Silver Tips fans. So we love our WHL and our, love our local team. We're not, uh, we're not the biggest NHL fans, we're getting to learn that. And so is most of this city. And I was hoping to get from your point of view as both a passionate longtime NHL fan, at least I'm assuming so with all those, uh, with all that regalia in your background, you know, behind you. Um, and also, um, you know, as the beat writer, what's your impressions as far as the city of Seattle taking to the Kraken? Um, I, I asked this because I've been to a couple games and there's, a lot of casual fans is what I've noticed. Yeah, there's a lot of casual fans. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's going to take some work for this team to to get to where it wants to be, I, I believe. Um, you know, having followed them really closely in the three to five years leading up to, to their launch, 
the one thing I, I was told repeatedly is, you know, they, they were going for it. I mean, this wasn't their idea wasn't to be just another NHL team in another American city because there's tons of those. And you know what I'm talking about. They're third or fourth most popular behind, you know, football, baseball, women's volleyball, whatever. you No, I, but <laughs> it just depends what market you're in, NASCAR and some markets. I mean, mm -hmm. they didn't want to be that. They wanted to actually be a major sport in this city, one that could rival the Mariners, maybe even pass them, pass the Seahawks when they're on their downturn. They, they weren't shooting for, for just the same old, same old casual NHL experience. But I think this year they've gotten to that point. I think they're at the point where they're, you know, third, maybe fourth in the city. Depends how many teams you count. Um, you know, I, I, it's tough to measure with the Sounders because the Sounders don't, I don't think, have as broad a fan base as the NHL teams do. I don't think I, they I think, get a lot of I them in at right game time. And I covered them for two years. I like them a lot, but I, I wouldn't put them up there with a major pro team. I think you're um, right. I think the Sounders have like a rabid fan base, but it's it's uh, it's a small fan base because a lot of casual people don't even know that last night there was a major event. Right. I've um, covered the Champions League. I covered it in El Salvador and I covered it in, in uh, Guadalajara, Mexico, four years ago when the Sounders played in both, when they played Chivas and they lost to Chivas. Chivas went on and won the title. Um, so I, I know how big that tournament is. But yeah, I, I don't think uh, I don't think they're at that level yet. But I mean, definitely the Sounders uh, are not as popular as the Mariners. They won't, they're not as popular as the Seahawks. And they're not as popular, I guarantee you, as the Huskies football team right now. And so, you know, they got a ways to go. And I, I don't think that's where they want to be. I think they have they, they've had a lot go against them in this first year uh, with COVID, with rescheduling of games, with all the tribulations of launching a new team. I mean, don't forget, they launched a brand new billion dollar arena. They launched a uh, brand new 80 million dollar practice facility. And they're waiting for the Oakview group, which is kind of almost one and the same with the crack. And it's tough to tell them apart sometimes, but they're building the, the practice, the, um, the AHL, the American Hockey League facility down in Coachella Valley near Palm Springs. And so they're still doing that. They, they've got a lot of projects that they're launching at the same time. And, um, and, and I think they got spread a little bit too thin. And I think, you know, at some point, I think some people lost sight of the actual on-ice product. Um, I think they were so stretched thin, getting everything open on time. They forgot, oh yeah, we got to put a team on the ice that can actually attract some attention in a brand new market. This isn't, you know, we're not, we're not going to Carolina. We're not going to Columbus. This isn't Nashville. This is Seattle. It's a brand new NHL market. And, you know, you've got to hold the fans interest here because there's a lot going on. You have the storm as well. You know, you be, be besides the teams I mentioned, you got the Seattle storm, you got the sea wolves in rugby and you've got all these smaller, you know, OL rain, you've got all these, uh, smaller little little teams but that still eats up a lot of discretionary money and and you have the silver tips as you mentioned you know these seattle thunderbirds there's all these sports teams floating around college sports as well you know you're not just moving into a, a one-horse town here and so as vegas did as a professional sport the vegas golden knights a few years ago they had the city themselves basically and and so i, I think the kraken had to be a little more cognizant of that and make sure that they put a quality product on the ice, not necessarily a Stanley cup finalist like Vegas was, but I, I definitely think they needed, and I think they wanted to put a team that was going to stay in contention longer than the month of November. And unfortunately that didn't happen. They, they really needed a team that was going to hold our interest through the month of March at least. And I think that was the goal, but clearly it didn't work out that way. And, and as a result, there's been a lack of interest. I think a lack of buzz around the city about the team. I'm actually writing about it in the Seattle Times in an upcoming um, end of season feature. 
But but there was a whole lot of buzz when this team launched and it's really dissipated. And you see that with the collapse of the secondary ticket market. You've seen that with uh, the empty seats at games. Um, and you're right, there are a lot of casual fans. And, and when you're a casual fan and you can go spend your, your $100 or whatever the tickets are costing you these days uh, on, on that or on a Mariners team, let's say, that still has a chance at doing something and is in first place right now for the first time since, I don't know, the Carter administration. Or <laughs> no, I, you know, a little – I actually covered their last playoff series uh, for the Toronto Star when they lost the Yankees. But oh uh, I was at every game. And it's like um, – <laughs> I remember that it was a long time ago. Man, I didn't have as many gray hairs, and uh, Brian, I hadn't covered the Mariners yet. But Brian, no, it's, Brian, it's, this conversation said, please switch the topic. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just no. But, but seriously, if you're going to spend it on that, you're going to spend it. You're going to spend it on that. You're not going to go spend it right. on a hockey team that that keeps losing. If you're a casual fan, so I think Kraken. I'll, I'll wrap this up. The Kraken really needs to do more to to attract those casual fans and to broaden. Uh, their, their fan base, the, the thing in hockey, and it's almost a joke in Canadian circles, you hear this, like the U.S. markets here, like, a lot of them have really rabid fans. Really, hockey fans are among the most ferocious you're going to meet anywhere, you know, and you don't want to insult their team because you'll, you'll start a bar fight, you know, with, with half of them. Uh, and, and a lot of them could throw down because they've played hockey. And so you got to be careful, but they are rabid. They're almost cult-like like that in their devotion to their teams, but they tend to be rather small. And, and a lot of those teams, despite how passionate their fans are, they'll be what I said, the third, fourth best team in, in, in their, in their market. And that's what we call a niche team in a niche market or, or a niche sport. Yeah. And, and the crackers, the they want to get beyond the niche status here in Seattle, they're going to have to do more to attract casual fans. And that starts with putting a better team on the ice and not taking five to 10 years to do it. Like yeah. some rebuilding plans or hey. building plans in this case, because they're not rebuilding anything. They, they, they're just starting to build right now. Right. So you got to get this done quicker. Sorry, it, Brian, Bri Brian, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I know you got a good question coming up. I just want to address Jeff. Uh, one thing that you said. Uh, so when we go to silver tips games, it's very loud and raucous. And so I guess, I guess that's where the crux of my question comes from is, you know, I, I'm, I'm not seeing that yet. And I don't know if that's just a difference between blue collar Everett and, you know, tech, tech Seattle, or if that's a, uh, indication of, uh, hockey fans, you know, th th I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you went into that. Thank you for. No, no, you're right. I mean, look, there, there's a different, a different crowd, uh, demographic at the silver ticks games. Definitely. They can't pay. A lot of those fans can't afford $300 seats and that's fine. I mean, I, I can't afford a $300 seat and, 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 it's like, um, and it's like, and if they kick me out after this podcast, yeah, I'm never going to be allowed back in. I won't see another. One. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a different demographic that said, I mean, the Kraken fans have been very loud this year. I will say, and, and I've been to enough NHL arenas now they're, they're a fairly loud bunch. I think part of the problem is again, the game's, the games are kind of meaningless right now. And, you know, it's great if you're a fan of rebuilding and retooling. And if you're the kind of guy, when you play a video game, you set the GM mode in there and you'd rather play GM mode <laughs> in the off season than actually play the video game and win some games in, in real time. That's fine. But if you're a fan that goes there and, and, and wants to see something at stake in these games, it really hasn't been all that much at stake since the month of uh, November. And that can't happen. That cannot happen with a new team in a new market. Unfortunately, though, it happened for the Kraken, and now they've got to dig their way out of that. And, and it's not irreparable. I mean, look, they, they've got a decent foundation. They got Matty Veneers, who just came in. He looks pretty good um, after eight games. And, and so you build off of that. 
but they've got a lot of salary cap room to add players this summer. They've got a lot of draft capital that they can trade to add players, and they have got to bring in some players that can score some freaking goals this year. And if they do that, they should be okay. Their goaltending is not as bad as people make it out to be. I, I think, uh, you know, you do that, you'll, you'll be okay. You'll have a team that can shoot for 500, you know, maybe contend for a playoff spot deep into next year rather than having it, the season be over at Thanksgiving. Okay. Good, good stuff there. Appreciate I, that. I'm not known for mincing my words. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I should though. My wife tells me I should. No, no, no. no. We've read you. <laughs> we've read your articles for 15, 20 years. We love that you bring it real. Yes, right. you do. Right. We, <laughs> we do appreciate that. Um, five-time Stanley Cup champion and Canadian's great guy, LaFleur, recently passed away. And I, I know you're a huge fan. Um, for people like me, the casual hockey fan, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, what should the casual fan know about Guy Lafleur? Okay, well, first that he pronounces it he Lafleur. Thank you. I didn't know. Well, no, that's fine. No, no, that's that's why. And, and you know, that's, that's part of what I'm trying to do this year is, and I have to remember that when I'm writing game stories, you know, I write stuff that I assume everybody knows, and now I'll remember, oh, nobody knows that, and so I have to go and rewrite an explainer. And I'm doing it on deadline. It drives me nuts. But I mean, it has to. And I get thanked by a lot of fans because they just don't know that. But yeah, it's there is a way to pronounce uh, guy in English. There are names, G-U-Y, that are pronounced guy. But in his case, it's it's Guy. Uh, when I listen to Boston hockey broadcasts back in the day in the 70s, when they, when that, that feed would be on, sometimes you'd hear them butchering the name. They called Lafleur, Lafleur. Every day we used to laugh our heads off. So you're not the first one that's done it. Don't worry. Right. Uh, that number ten behind me uh, that you can see on the video here—that's Guy Lafleur. Um, that's uh, an autographed uh, jersey of his that le, le, uh, I got as a gift. Le, nice. le Demon Blonde, right? The Demon Blonde. Yep. Yeah. That's that's actually like so. He's known as the Flower, but that's just the literal translation of Lafleur is the Flower. Right, right. But yeah, the D, the Blonde Demon is, uh, and that's the English translation of Le Demon Blonde. Um, that's because his hair used to flow behind his, his, his head. It wasn't when, when he'd skate and, and it, not so much blonde hair. It's almost dark brownish, but whatever it, uh, it's funny. He, he took a while to get going. He was a rookie. They drafted him in uh, 71, took him number one overall, took him ahead of Marcel Dion, who became a, a famous hall of fame player for the Los Angeles Kings and was also from Quebec. So a lot of controversy because Dion started playing really well right off the bat, whereas Lafleur was eased into it a lot more slowly. And uh, there's a lot of pressure on him, ton of pressure on these guys. I mean, we talk about sports pressure here in Seattle and I laugh sometimes because you look at what goes on here. It, it, it's just, when I was growing up as a kid, watching the Canadians, if they lost two games in a row, the coach's job would be in jeopardy, no matter who the coach was. And so what the answer, the solution was, they just didn't lose two games in a row. Uh, and, and it was a circus. It was a five newspaper town circus every day uh, with, with, with these teams. I mean, that's pressures coming up. It took him four seasons to uh, before he really started to find himself. And when he did, right before that season, he took his helmet off. He had worn a helmet at the time. There were no visors in those days, but a handful of players wore helmets because they were ahead of their time and smart. But he took his off and, and his, his play changed overnight. He, he scored a whole bunch of goals, then became a 50-goal scorer. And so the legend was born and his teammates actually told him, um, I think it was Yvonne Cornoyer, the captain, and maybe, maybe Jacques Lemaire or Jacques Lemaire who might've told him, uh, as well. Don't, uh, you know, don't put that helmet back on whatever you do. <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and it was great. I'll tell you, I was in the building the night he got his, and I was trying to find the ticket stub so badly the other day that there's a famous picture 
a photograph. Uh, the night Lafleur scored his 1,000th point at the Montreal Forum, I believe it was in 1981, and I was there. I was actually at that game. My dad got tickets from his company and took me, and we went. And they were playing the Winnipeg Jets. It was like 9 nothing in the second period for the Canadians because the Jets were horrible. And uh, they ended up winning 9-3, but Lafleur got his 1,000th uh, point that night, and he stood behind the bench, and he raised his stick to salute the crowd. And, and in behind him, there's a 15-year-old Mario Lemieux clapping and there's a photo oh, wow. uh, an ap or cp photo of it uh and uh it, it actually made the rounds this week of lumia standing there right behind the bench cheering and in those days there was no glass so you could see everybody behind the bench you could walk up and tap the player on the shoulder um and and so i was actually at that game and uh you know it's got a lot of significance now and i know i kept the ticket stub i was just tearing my office apart trying to find it uh, i've got a lot of stubs now over the years so it's uh but that was a thrill seeing that happen and uh it's funny you grow up in that city and it doesn't seem like anything on oh, mario Luke was there and um but now when you come out here and you know you've got all these people learning about the nhl or longtime junior hockey fans who, who love the nhl and you tell them some of these stories they go wow really and i mean my hometown was laval right outside of montreal and that's where mike bossy who also died a week before lafleur he he played his junior there and mario lemieux played his uh, junior hockey game. My first junior hockey game was watching Mario Lemieux break wing at Gretzky's uh, career record for points. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, uh, standing room too. It was right at ice level. He used to sell standing room there. So I'd pay, we'd go stand on the ice, watch all the fights up close. It was a lot of fun. Wow. It's kind of, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. In, uh, yeah, that was in 1984. Lemieux that night scored five goals, had six assists, and he won two fights. I tell everybody. Hey, Gretzky, <laughs> nice. Gretzky was, Gretzky was actually in the building. He showed up. He was playing the next night against the Canadians. And uh, so he was at the building to see him break his uh, points record. I gotta, so. That's awesome. That Thank you. That's very cool. I Question for you. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, as kids grow up with the Kraken, they'll – start making these kind of memories and these kind of connections uh, as you did with, uh, with, with uh, the Canadians question for you. um, People ask me, you know, like, who's your, who are your favorite players? And I tell them uh, Keith Kachuk or Carter Hart, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. now Dustin Wolf, you know, the last goalie we had uh, Kachuk being a Thunderbird and Carter Hart, obviously being the the Flyers uh, goalie who used to play with the Silvertips. And, and I was just wondering like, would the Kraken benefit from taking like a token local local kid in the draft? Somebody that people could latch on to for, for the here and now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely if there was a younger player, uh, it would behoove them to do that. Um, I was a little surprised they didn't go that route so much in the uh, expansion draft. Um, it, it's It's... You know, they, they had some opportunities to take some guys, you know, TJ Oshie and I'll let it be known. Yeah. Ahead of yeah. Him, he didn't want to come. And, you know, that probably would have been a problem. Although he, for me, he would have made more sense as a captain of this team than Mark Giordano, who you knew you were going to trade halfway through the season anyway, or two thirds of the way through. I, I, I still don't get how you do that with a first year expansion team, but um, they did it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think they've, they've got to be on the lookout for that. And I think if push comes to shove, they got to go in that direction. I like that they took Matty Beniers. Um, I, I, I thought for a while they were going to take him because not only was he a really good player, obviously an NHL-ready player, but he, he was an American-born player. And I think, you know, if you're trying to sell this game, 
as I went on a monologue about earlier, if you're trying to sell this sport in a new market, you have to be cognizant of things like that. You, you do have to, it, it helps when you can get American born players playing for the team that are good. And they have quite a few of them, you know, Ryan Donato, who, who's another one who's really emerged this year. He's another American born player because it helps for kids to see um, players that, that are like them. And, and, you know, if you're an American kid playing hockey out here and, and you can't get a local guy, next best thing, would be to, uh, you know, to take a guy from either that played for Everett or for, for Seattle. And, um, you know, they did that with Alexander True, although he's more of a minor leaguer. And now I think he projects more as a, as a guy who's going to spend most of his career in the AHL. Okay. But, they, you know, he played for the Thunderbirds and they took him from San Jose. Um, and he, he played in a couple of games with them this year. So either get somebody like that or a Matt Barzell from the Islanders, who's not from here, he's from BC, but he played out here, obviously. He took the Thunderbirds to the WHL title about five right. years ago. Right. Um, you know, if he's available and he might be, you know, go out and get him for sure. But you have to have that. I think you also have to have players that, that, you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity in the NHL. I think it helps. Um, if you can get players that are, you know, whatever you want to say, you know, black or, or, um, definitely, um, somebody who's Latin American, something like that. If you can get a player like that, I mean, it helps you sell the game. Definitely. Yeah, and, and but they have to be good. You don't yeah. want to just get a, a you know a player who's there just because of how they look. You want them to be decent players, and I think that would really behoove the team. I think they will be. They are going to be on the lookout for and it's that. Too, and it's too bad they haven't been in all aspects of their team so far. And it's too bad for his injury. But Tanev, who is a character, yeah, kind of like at least for me, I'm like that's a guy I can gravitate to because he's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, he does silly faces on his photos, yeah. and you know he's making some interesting comments and post game um so and he has a hair he's like he's like he's Fleur. He has the hair, hair flowing yeah. behind his head he doesn't <laughs> score like Eva Fleur, but he, he's got the head and uh the, the head of hair and yeah no you're right i mean they, this team the one thing it does need is, is guys for players to latch onto. the criticism over the years of the nhl compared to other sports is that it doesn't market its players as well and that the players lack personality they lack uh, anything that would make fans gravitate towards them. Even the best players, you, you hear some of them, and they sound like a vacuum cleaner salesman on, on TV. It's it's just, yeah, yeah, and it's refreshing when you hear a guy like Tana who's not afraid to, to be funny and, and say things. Um, a lot of these players do have personality. I think the sport of hockey for years has been one that kind of hammers down the nail, to use a Seattle or a Japanese expression, actually, but it, it's a Seattle expression locally. Uh, you know, they hammer down the nail that sticks out too much. That's hockey. And that's the NHL. And it doesn't work in the modern day. If you want to be a niche sport, you want to be number four in America for perpetuity, keep doing it. But if yeah. you want to actually broaden your game and, and get more fans, you do have to have personality. And I think, you know, that would help the crack and go a long way. And they get a few guys that are interesting that I'd like to see them uh, try to market more. Speaking of that, you talked about for, uh, cracking first round pick, Matty Beneers. I mean, seven points in his first eight games. Is he the future face of the franchise? Is he the future Ken Griffey Jr. or the future Dustin Ackley? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no. That, um, I, I, like, I like Dustin, by the way. I, I liked him as a guy. I'm not going to sit here and rag on him, but I know exactly what you mean. I mean, he just obviously didn't work out. It's, it's. Um, I, I think, just the way he started, I don't see him. Although Ackley started really well as well. I think he had a triple in his uh, first start or something. It was against Philadelphia back in uh, – 2011 I want to say because I was there covering the game and it, it's um, so you, you never know off a handful of games but so far Beniers looks very good he seems to have a good head on his shoulders um, right now he probably is the face of the franchise and you know that tells you a lot that's this, this franchise needs to go and get actually 
that that's too soon to say that about him. Nobody's really a face of this franchise. That's part of the issue. They, they have to get a franchise face. Um, Philip Grubauer, you know, he's the highest, uh, you know, he's here for the longest term, signed a big contract. I, I, I don't think he's played well enough to really be the face of the franchise. Seems like a decent guy. Um, you know, he could become that, but I don't think he is. You know, Jared McCann is another guy that's done really well over a much longer period right now than, than Veneers has. So I don't think it's fair to anoint Veneers or anybody else as the face of the franchise. I think they hope he will become that someday. I, I don't know that he is. I don't know that he is. I think he could become a very good player, an excellent player. I don't know if he's a franchise cornerstone the way like a Connor McDavid would be or something like that. I don't think he's that kind of player, but I think he's the kind of player that could help a winning playoff team down the road. And, and right now, if you're Seattle, you'll take that. So glad you mentioned Connor McDavid because uh, Matt, Brian and I, and a bunch of our friends went to Everett uh, preseason. We got to see a game at the angel, of the winds casino presented by whatever Xfinity or, you know, I've, whatever the name of that arena is. Um, <laughs> we got to see them and we got to see the Edmonton Oilers and uh, it's right down the street from us. And it's, you know, we're not sitting in the rafters. What a great idea the Kraken had. Maybe other teams are doing this too, but to go to Spokane, to go to Kent, to go to Everett and start making fans at the base level. I, I, I applaud them for that. Um, and I'm just, I'm just curious, what else can they do to ingratiate themselves into this community? Yeah, I mean, that was a great idea. They went there, but only after they found out their arena wasn't going to be ready on time. So that's why they did. But it was a good, it was a good, it was a good uh, plan B. It was a good plan B by them. Yeah, I mean, what I else can they out do? I thought it was the goodness of their the heart. Out there, signing autographs, meeting people, meeting fans. They could be a lot more accessible to the media, I think. I, I think they've done the NHL thing, and they're a little reticent with the media, which is – you know, it's great if you're living in 1986, but we've moved on from that, you know, and most of the sports have. I, I think you've got to open the team up to the media a lot more. You've got to make the, the coaching staff more accessible, but it's been different. I, and, you know, I'll give I'll give them a break on this. It's been a little difficult to do that because of COVID-19 protocols. And that's really hurt the team. There's a lot of stuff that's happened with the Kraken that's not their fault. Um, the pandemic was one of them. And, and, you know, when I said they may have taken their, their eye off the ball with the team and putting the team on the ice, I think that's true. But I think it's because their eye was taken off the ball so much in trying to get this arena ready because of all the COVID delays and the pandemic restrictions. So, so they, they've really had their hands tied to a degree with how they can market their players. Um, that said, I, I think before this next season comes, they got to sit down and have a meeting with all these players and say, you know, it's not just not about being nice with the media, but just say, look, you can't operate here like you would in any one of your previous teams, all right? You're not playing in Carolina. You're not playing in Vancouver. You're not playing in, in, in uh, Dallas. You're playing in a market that's really new, still doesn't get your sport, but you got to be open to stuff. And, yeah, even if it takes away from some of your time on the ice and, yeah, your team might lose one more game, then possibly your team's losing a lot of games anyway. It's – they, they really, really, really have to sell this team better next year um, because a lot of the restrictions have been list, lifted. So there's no more excuses. You know, they did a great job with this team, a fantastic job. And I've said this over and over for years. Their ownership is top notch. They've got the best of the best in all fields of business running this team. They, they launched their name. They launched their, their logo. They sold merchandise at record levels uh, when, when they first introduced everything a couple of years ago. Um, they know what they're doing. They're, they're not. These aren't dumb people. But when it came to launching this team starting last October, they did not get a lot of it right. And I think they, they need a do-over. Um, I think they need a year where the arena is ready on time. 
where they've got a, a real AHL farm club down in Coachella Valley, California, where they don't have all this other stuff going on in the back of their heads and they can just focus on putting a quality team on the ice. And I think, um, I think that's got to happen. And I think they've got to get out there and realize, Hey, this isn't just like anywhere USA. We are uh, a team trying to make inroads in a new market here. And we can't just act the way NHL teams do in other markets. You do that. You're going to be, you're going to be number four in this city for, for years and years to come. And you won't have to worry about it because, you know, halfway through the season, people stop coming here, covering your games. And, and that'll be that they have you, to do a better job. Yeah. You'll with, be the Arizona Cardinals playing in a college arena. Uh, yeah, the Coyotes. They, they, on the card. Yeah, Coyotes. Sorry, uh, you know what I mean. Sorry. I know. Sorry to correct you. It's a bad. No, no, no. Habit. It's fine. No, no. I, oh, you're good. Um, but yeah, no. You know, and they have rabid fans down there. They have great fans. I, I used to live. I used to have a condo across the street from where the Coyotes play, oh. uh, or used to play at Gila River. Right now at Glendale, they're getting kicked out of there. But I, I mean, they have a great fan base. The problem is nobody lives close enough to that place to get there in traffic. And and yeah, it's tough. You don't want to be in that situation. And and. You know, the Kraken aren't there yet. The Kraken, like I said, they have a top-notch ownership. They have very smart people running them. They, but they've got to, like, put the uh, – ego is the wrong word. they got to put the NHL tradition aside and not operate like a typical NHL team because if they do that, it's not going to fly in this market. There's too many other teams playing here, and they have to be good. You know, if they had a Stanley Cup contender right now, nobody would care what they did shaking hands in, in public or, or meeting with the media. The problem is that didn't happen, and and – you know, if you're going to be, if you're going to act like a typical aloof NHL team, you got to win and in a new market anyway, and they're not winning. So they have to, they have to kind of shed some of the tradition in this league and be a lot more open and, and they have to work with their own marketing people to do that. And so I hope to see that next year because there won't be any pandemic excuses. We hope next year. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope so anyway, just from a public health perspective, I, I really hope they can move past some of that stuff. And I want to see this team succeed. Trust me. I, I've, I've been right there from day one, you know, kind of pumping this team up, you know, telling people, hey, this is going to be a great sport. And I truly believe it is. But I think they can do a little bit better job uh, with what they what they than what they have so far. And I think it starts with putting a better team on the ice. That's got to start this summer. So we got to hold some some people's feet to the fire on that. Absolutely. I want to discuss rising from the deep, the Seattle crack and a tenacious push for expansion and the Emerald city sports revival. This is your new book coming out. And I believe you said in November, is that correct? Uh, the official release date is November, but you can pre-order it right now on Amazon. And, and I would pre-order it too, because there's going to be thousands and thousands of these books flying off the shelf and uh, off the virtual shelf anyway and if you want to get one you got to make sure it's there so you got to pre-order it now and reserve your spot in line on amazon or uh, any one of those uh barnes and noble any 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 of those uh book sites just google rising from the deep and my name and you'll find uh, half a million places that'll sell you the book and uh you know it's just like cracking season tickets get it now at a discount because you never know if they win the cup they're, they're gonna be they're, they're gonna be way in demand and so get get your Get your books now because once it once it's a New York Times bestseller, it's going to uh, it's probably going to double in price. Or believe it or not, believe it or not, mine arrived right at the beginning of the show, so I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, no, yeah, and everything I just said about the Kraken, you can ignore, throw out the window because they're the greatest franchise on earth. Because you got to buy the book <laughs> and read all about them. No, I'm I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, the book, it, it's I mean, you guys know the whole saga that went down with with uh, the battle to get an arena here, Chris Hansen. The city, 
um, Tim Laiwiki, all that stuff. It's all in the book. So uh, read it. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it's more than just a hockey book. In fact, there's very little on ice action. The book kind of ends right where the season starts. And uh, given how the season played out, I'm really glad that we took that approach. Um, but it's, it's really everything leading up to the, the franchise. And I look, I do believe this is going to be a successful franchise in the long run. I mean, I'm ragging on them a bit here, but, but really they've got a lot of things in place long-term that I think, you know, with a, a few additions, a little better attitude off the ice, I think this is going to become a marquee franchise because I think there's too many smart people running it for it not to be. And, uh, and a lot of that is we get into a lot of that in the book. It's a lot of what happened off the ice and a lot of what it took to get uh, Key Arena, first of all, approved and then transformed, you know, into a $1.2 billion arena. And, and you know, wh whatever I say about the Kraken, I should always um, emphasize this very much that um, they paid for their own arena. Basically, the, the Oakview Group. And, and their partners, some of which are the Kraken's owners, they paid for their own arena. I was actually just owner. about to ask that. As yeah. far as the, you talked about the Oakview Group, does your book uh, cover that from the perspective of more of a uh, uh, objective viewpoint? Or is it, hey, look, these guys did an amazing job. You should be looking at this. No, we looked, at, we looked at everything they, they, we looked at everything they did. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, you know, I joke, though, it's like the Tim Laiwiki book. But it really is. I mean, Laiwiki is a fascinating story, just his contributions to American um, uh, sports venues. And that alone would make a great topic for a book. And so there's a lot of him in the book. Um, and honestly, I think they did a great job. I really do. Uh, they paid for it. You know, if it's a disaster and the arena doesn't work, it's, it's coming out of their pockets, not coming out of our pockets. And the city had, had an asset in Key Arena that taxpayers had poured literally, you know, tens or uh, millions of dollars into um, to build and then to fix, but it wasn't a fix. It was more of a band-aid. And so they're stuck with this venue that's going to keep losing money for years, or you're going to build a new arena in Soto that's going to require some bond funding on behalf of, of taxpayers. But more importantly, I think, and this is really what swayed the, the conversation later, and it wasn't the port and it wasn't all this stuff that people were yammering on about. It, it was the fact that they built that arena, Key Arena is done. And not only Key Arena, all of Seattle Center, which is you know, say what you want about it. This is one of the few big public spaces in America, this size. And, you know, it's up to Seattle. If it wants to be known as a good city, a world-class city, you got to take care of spaces like that. And so they found a way to keep Key Arena as that center's anchor and, and in partnership with all the other people that, that actually help run Seattle Center, including the Wright family that owns the Space Needle. Um, you know, so, so it's not just what's happening here with the crack and it's the long-term vision for what can happen with Seattle Center. And if you, if you build the Soto Arena, you basically take that away because you destroy Key Arena and then there's no anchor left. For, so, so that's the thinking, that was the mindset of what was going on with politicians, but it's easier said than done. Who's gonna come along and pay for Key Arena? That was the argument for years that nobody would wanna do that. Well, they were wrong because apparently there, there was at least one group that was, or there were two groups actually, they were gonna spend at least 600 million fixing it. And this one ended up spending 1.2 billion. It, it's, it's, I don't think I'm overstating it. And I've, I've heard people that know more than I do about this topic when they say it's, it's probably it's one of the best deals in the history of, um, of stadiums for, for the public. You don't get groups coming along willing to build this kind of stuff in a decrepit arena and leave the city in charge. Um, just doesn't happen that often. And they built a world-class arena. Uh, the Soto Arena was very nice. I saw the plans. 
I, it probably would not have been as nice as this, not for the price. The Soto Arena, I, th I think, got up to $600 million. Um, th This was double that amount, and they paid for it. because They caught the right guy at the right time with Tim Laiwiki. He wanted to build an empire, and this was going to be his crown jewel, and they took full advantage of that, the city. They, 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 they really did. Jeff, question for you. Uh, yeah. in, your, in your book, do you cover the politics and just the uh, ecology of Seattle and how we're – how we deal with sports in general, you know, uh, because I think part of the problem with the Sonics, uh, in fact, there was a city council member that said it lent the Sonics lent no cultural. I'm getting the quote wrong. But, yeah. That was Nick Licata. You're talking about. Yes. Nick Licata. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was, kind of, there, there was antipathy towards sports at that point in time. Uh, but it sounds like this Oakview group changed that narrative or was it something else? Do you cover that in your book? Well, yeah, well, I, I go into a lot of what was behind why they weren't going to fund the Sonics back in, in 2008. And a lot of it had to do with they had just done a stadium giveaway with the Mariners and another stadium giveaway basically with, with Paul Allen's uh, Seahawks. And, you know, there were people at the time asking, like, why should we be giving public money to a, a legitimate billionaire who can afford this with the money falling out of his wallet? But they did anyway. And and if you remember, there were public votes associated with both. In one case, the Mariners lost the vote, but then they won on the field. And so people kind of did an end run around the vote and, and got it passed in the legislature anyway. And so uh, in King County slight, imposed those slight, new taxes. They got the stadium built. And yeah. the same with the Seahawks. I think that vote passed by like half a percent or a one percent. And so they, they walked away without a fight. The opposition group did. And we didn't have a fight. And we got the stadium built. But by the time the Sonics came around looking for their, you know, their cut, their share of the pie, it was done. There was nobody that was going to listen to them. They had had it with, with free, you know, stadium handouts. And, and um, I still don't know why they didn't build a roof over uh, Lumen Field, but that, that's a, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's, it's, yeah. So, so, I mean, that's the history. I, I don't, I don't think sports have no cultural value. I mean, we, we've had this argument and sports economists will all tell you, and they are right about this they don't have enough value to justify a massive stadium giveaways like, like we've seen here in this city. And we've seen in other places like Glendale, Arizona, which I just mentioned, which is why the coyotes are getting kicked out of there. There's a whole saga there, which I do get into in the book. Um, they do have obviously a civic pride value and, and, and it's tough to put a financial figure on that. Some people have tried, uh, you know, and I'm a Montrealer when the Canadians made the Stanley cup final last spring, um, and, and, you know, they couldn't let fans in the building. They had 3,000 fans at the game. You looked outside and there were like something like 50,000, 100,000 fans out in the street around the arena. And when they scored the winning goal over Vegas to send them to the cup final, I mean, the place just exploded. I was like in tears watching that. And I don't even live there anymore. I haven't lived there in 20, uh, 24 years. But I mean, I knew what it meant. I knew how much it meant to the city. And um, you can't measure that kind of stuff. But that said, for every team like that, you have a team like, like uh, I promised myself I wasn't going to make this a Mariners <laughs> bash fest, but it's just, gonna, do, please and do. look, the present day Mariners are doing a good job. I have nothing against them. It's a completely different team, different, different management, different, everything, different coaches from when I covered them. So I have no dog in this one, but I mean, look, they, they got all that money to build a stadium and they haven't been to the playoffs in, in something like, like 21 freaking years. 
they've never won a World Series. Even my Expos, as, as the Washington team, have finally won a World Series now. So it's it's like, you know, enough already. So so that's the opposite of the civic pride thing. Sometimes the teams can become a source of not such civic pride. The Mariners are very fortunate. They have such good fans here in Seattle that have stuck by them through thick and thin, by and large. Uh, the Mariners also have one of the best marketing and one of the best PR departments in, in all of sports. And, and they have been through some tough times and, and they know that they've got to do their job at, at the best of their abilities or they're going to lose some people very fast. They'll lose coverage and they'll probably lose fans as a result. And they've been great. And so, you know, that said, though, the team's very lucky that, that the fans here are very, very supportive of their teams and they stick around. It's one reason I think the Kraken, you know, it's not an irreparable issue that they have here with their first year struggles. I mean, there, there are some good fans here. And if this team wins, or at least turns things around a little next year. I think the fans will, by and large, come back and, and support them. You guys are nodding your head. I'm just talking your ear off. No, oh, you're we good. Love it. We, we love appreciate it. it. We could pick your brain for if hours. You want, if you we, want to bash the we, Mariners, I'll, we'll just keep or going. Or yeah, no, We'll all join in. I, I, I didn't like <laughs> Unfortunately, the Mariners, when I, I covered them from 2007 through 2013, I mean, those are some of the worst. It included 2008 and 2010 seasons. Those oh, yeah. are the worst times to be around that ball club. And that has nothing to do with me. I just happen to be the unfortunate guy that wandered in to cover the whole thing. And so people think I love to bash the Mariners. It's not true at all. I, I really hope they win it this year. I really hope they, uh, I really hope they, they can revive sports a bit in this city. We were doing well at the Seahawks for a while, but now they're kind of on the, the downslope a little bit. I, I'm looking forward to the Sounders game next Wednesday, because I think it's, the, it's probably the biggest moment in, in, this city's soccer history. People could, don't realize this. Could be MLS it, history too. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, they won MLS cups and I was there when they won it here. I thought that was great. But if you win the champions league here in Seattle, I mean, that's just going to be so huge. I mean, Seattle's never accomplished anything like that on that level, on that global level. I, I don't think in any sport, I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, not, not major professional sport anyway, Super Bowl's big clearly, but it's big in this country. You know, and it's, it's big in countries on a peripheral level to go party and stuff, but they're, they're not invested in the whole season like we are here. Soccer around the world is a big deal. When they lost in Mexico yesterday, man, the people there were not happy. So and they didn't lose. They tied. But, I mean, it was just like a loss because they blew a 2 nothing lead in the last 13 minutes of the game. So, um, I know. The yeah. U- UW rowing team when they won the Olympics. How about that? Yeah, that, sorry, that was, yeah, the boys in the boat. That was a long time ago. It was before I was born, believe it or not. Not long before, but a little bit before. Yeah, no, I, you know, I did them a disservice. And as I was even opening my mouth, I said, no, nah, wait, got to think before you say that because something, there's always something. You learn that in baseball, too. We used to have a manager named Jim Fergozzi, the late Jim Fergozzi, yeah. great guy. He used to cover the, uh, he used to be the manager of the Blue Jays when I covered them about 20, 22 years ago. And, um, Always, there would always be somebody that asked him a question of, hey, do you think this has ever happened before? Something that happened during the game and he'd look at them like, like you idiot, this game's 150 years old or whatever it is. They're, everything you could even imagine has happened like five times over and then there's stuff you forgot even after that. And, and he was right. And so I've never asked that question because never mind, anything you see in front of you has almost always happened before. And it's a good lesson to learn covering sports here. Um, you know, anything you think you're living through, like, oh, I, I, I don't know how much time you got. I, I get into this when people start talking about rebuilding plans and, hey, it. our Go team's building through youth as if it's never happened before. And I said, yeah, it's, it's all been done before, my friend. The question is, are you going to do it the right way here? Um, you know, and I always just say in baseball, don't look at birth certificates. You got to look at what's 
on, on the back of their baseball cards because birth certificates don't mean anything. Just because yeah. you're young doesn't mean you're going to be a young superstar. And yeah, you know, it, it's 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 a cynical way to look at things, but it, it's I've learned it over and over. Um, everything I experienced in Toronto covering baseball, I experienced here in Seattle just about five years with about a five to seven year delay. Um, but it all transpired the same, almost the same way. And uh, so you learn, you learn about things come and go. And uh, it's one thing for Gozi said, like, you know, anything you think you've never seen before has always happened. And I, I listened to him. He was a pretty smart guy. You know, for a baseball manager, he's a smart guy. <laughs> Absolutely. I got one last question for you. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. who plays Jeff Baker when they make a Hollywood movie? Oh, uh, no, I knew you were going to ask this. Yeah, I could give you the uh, Yanni Gord answer because they asked him this on, uh, they asked him if Matthew McConaughey was going to play him. And that was actually pretty funny up on the big screen. He said, no, I'm going to play myself. And so whoever was doing the trivia answers lost uh, because <laughs> she thought he was going to say Matthew McConaughey. It was like an ABC answers. Um, you know, what? I, it depends. Some, sometimes when I have to lose weight, I get told, uh, Mitch Levy once said on the air, um, uh, uh he, he once said, uh, that I look like a young Nathan Lane. And so I obviously needed to lose weight at that point. And, um, so I wasn't very happy about that. And, but he said it in a nice joking manner. Um, this was a long time ago, obviously. And then, uh, I've been told I look like Robert Downey Jr. Sometimes when I'm about 10, 15 pounds lighter than I am now. And I, I like that a little bit better because I like Robert Downey Jr. as an actor. Um, I think he's a very interesting guy. And uh, I've also been told I look like Charlie Sheen, which, which was which was good for a while. And um, and then obviously it wasn't so good. Until about so, five years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Until about five, <laughs> even seven to ten years ago. Now I just like, yeah, I'd rather look like... So I, I guess any one of those guys could, oh, you know what? The guy from Office Space, uh, what the heck's his name? Lumberg? Uh, what's no, that? Not, not Lumberg? <laughs> no, no, no. The guy from Office Space. Uh, what is his name? I, I can't remember. But uh, yeah, he, he was a, no, no, not him. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember. Every time I see him, I say, yeah, could be that guy. Could be that guy. He's not bad. I don't think he's hurt anybody or done anything controversial lately, so. <laughs> I'll take him, but I can't remember his name, so that's not going to. Matt says Ron Livingston, the main character. That's that's who it is, Ron yeah, Livingston. Yeah. Ron Livingston. I can see yeah. that. I can yeah, see I can that. see that too. <laughs> I can see that. He might need to get a little slightly bigger head. I've been told I have a bit of a bulbous head, but uh, <laughs> only by the folks that like me. So. I can see that way more than Nathan Lane. That's What's that? Sure. I can see that way more than Nathan Lane for sure. Well, no, I mean, I, I'll tell you, when I was doing the Jeff Baker live show back in uh, back in the day, when it first started, I, I had a little Nathan Lane going for me. I, I had to slim down a little bit. I think, you know, all that late night baseball traveling was starting to literally go to my head. So I had the Nathan Lane look a little bit. Slack jaw. And my jawline wasn't as firm as it could have been. Um, <laughs> Um, we got one last question for you before we do yeah, our shout. Yeah, yeah. we, we got to make sure Brian asked this question. This is the, this... A couple days ago, you wrote an article called oh. "As Kraken Near End of the Season Playoff Bound Kings Highlight What a Complete Game Looks Like." It shows the gap. It really does show the gap that the Kraken had have had to overcome. I we want our li listeners to go read that article, but could you share a couple glaring problem areas? Yeah, I mean, I, and the biggest one, I, I asked Dave Haxtell about that afterwards, and he's a pretty insightful guy. Um, he, uh, yeah, you know, he mentioned the shift-to-shift -shift competitiveness. 
and, and it's it's tough. And I think one of the reasons the Kraken have had their problems this year is they 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 really need to play a really physically demanding game, a really aggressive game where they t- can't take a shift off. And I, I think that wears you down physically over an 82 game schedule. And I think that's one reason they they it's basically playing playoff hockey over 82 games, and no NHL team can do that. Um, they they've been successful for a while. But because, you know, they lack talent in certain areas, they really have to make up for it by playing a Yanni Gord type of game too often. And, and, um, and I think that's contributed to some of the injuries they've had this year. I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think a lot of their players are suited necessarily to that style, and at least some of them aren't. And, and so that's what he was saying. I mean, because the LA Kings, they'll come at you in waves and they'll keep coming. Even last night's game, it looked like they were out of it after the first period. Being outshot 12-2, to two, just made the playoffs – the night before, hey man, was, they were still in party mode, and, and they're you know losing two nothing. Next thing you know, they turn it on and bang, the cracking are out of it. And so it's it's uh, the cracking can't take a shift off or a period off. They really have to do that and be a little more like the Kings um, when, when that way. When uh, that said, though, they were very competitive with the Kings this year, so they, they could have beaten them at least two or three times out of the four games. They beat them once. When you're talking so, to newbies like like me and Brian, um, when you take a shift off. That means what exactly? It means you don't go as hard. I mean, players have X amount of shifts per game. They usually last yeah. about, you know, 45 seconds on average. And, you know, you got to go all out and you got to slam into guys and you got to, you got to fight for the puck. So what I'm talking about is like when there's a loose puck out there and you got to go in for a battle and the guy's a little bigger than you do and, and you know, it's going to hurt when you go in there and start slamming your body around and trying to fight for possession, you still got to do it. And, and, you know, right now we're, we're in the 80th game last night, the 80th game that was against uh, out of 82 guys aren't really in the mood to necessarily do that, but you got to do it. And and you got to fight for every single face off, every single loose puck, every single, you got to try to not to let the other guy outskate you for a loose puck. And it's tough. It's not, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to forecheck against some of these bigger teams forechecking, meaning going in there and slamming some guys around to gain puck possession in the other team zone. It's, that's a big part of the Kraken's game. And, uh, and then you got to fight to hold the puck in their zone. And, and with the Kraken, it's a lot of fighting because they don't have any Conor McDavid's or Leon Dreisaitl's on their team. They, they, they really, they, they have a bunch of guys that, that, that are good middle of the road uh, role players per se, not Maddie Beneers, hopefully, but you know, the, just by nature of the expansion draft. So they have to work a lot harder to get results on this team. Okay. Wait, I'm a little bit confused. Hope, uh, please, yeah. please, uh, please, uh, help out a new guy like me. So uh, that almost sounds like it's a talent issue, but but when you first explained it, it seemed like a heart issue or a coaching issue, like not. No, I mean, look, it's both. It's both. Look, they, they put a team together to start the year. There are a lot of advanced projection systems, including the ones they use in Vegas to set betting lines. So, you know, thought they were going to be close to a 90 point team this year, 90 points. Some year might, might, some years might get you into the playoffs. Um, so they thought this was going to be a team that played almost 500. The Kraken certainly thought it was going to be that, and it didn't pan out that way. That said, they're not a team loaded with talent because the draft didn't give them all these superstars they could go get. There were one or two they could have had, but they passed on for money reasons uh, and, and for gambit health issues. They weren't sure that, that uh, Tarasenko from St. Louis was going to be uh, the goal scorer he is again this year. Um but by and large, they didn't have access to those really elite skill players. So they had to devise a system where they can maximize what they had. And they did. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't panned out for them. Um, so in some cases, yeah, it's probably a hard issue to a degree. There's sometimes I watch the games and you can tell who, who wants to be in there and who doesn't. I'm not going to name any names. Uh, and, and the Kraken aren't naming any names. But 
you know, you, you can watch guys. There's guys that are, that are there for one game and they're invisible for three others. And, and what they're going to have to do is as time goes on, they're going to have to shed some of those guys from the team and bring in some guys that actually want to be here and want to go all out. I mean, look, you look at Jordan Everly, you look at Yanni Gord after every single game, looks like he's beat up, looks like he's yeah. been in a street fight. And you look at Jordan Everly, he comes out and talks. And even in games where he doesn't do anything, he, he just looks exhausted. He looks spent. You know, these guys know you cannot take a shift off. you you got to yeah. give it your all all the time. Why? Because you're in the NHL and there's five more guys that will want to take your spot if you if you let up, even in game number 82 in a meaningless season. you got to keep going. That's that's the, the fun of pro sports. And so they, they need to find a few more guys like that um, on the team. And then that said, they need to bring in some, some guys that can snipe, some, can put the puck in the net 30, 35 times a season. That would help. Or at least 25 times a season, a couple more guys like that to take some of the weight off of guys like Yanni Gortz. They don't have to get beat up every single game, trying to, trying to bang for the puck and get into the tough areas and do stuff. Uh, They've got a very grinding team, almost a plotting team at times this year. They're quicker. They're not a plotting team, but they they do. They are a grinding team. They're not a elite, an elite flashy skill team per se. Is that by design by general manager, Ron Francis, or is that? Yeah, well, no, no, that is definitely, he made no bones. I mean, he, he, he stockpiled salary cap space for future years. Uh, for this season as well, but it turns out he didn't need it because they weren't going to the playoffs and they knew that right away. So it's, it's, you know, but he's got a lot of room to improve this team quickly now. And that was by design. He knew that there were going to be some good players coming on the market in coming off season, starting with this one. And that when teams run out of salary cap space to keep those players, he'll be right there to take them in. So it works. If he can get those players, this plan will work over the long term. The problem right now is, as you alluded to earlier in this podcast, is, is they blew this entire first season trying to get to that spot. They, they really didn't maximize some of the, uh, so, the, uh, the, the toehold they could have gained here in Seattle to start off with. And you only get one chance to make a first impression. This one was sort of eh. And so they'll have to do a better job next year, I think. Awesome. All right, we're at the end of the show. And just a monumental thank you to Jeff Baker, We've wanted you on for a while, and it's so fantastic that that you're here. You've always wanted the Kraken here, and we're all benefiting. Yeah, I know, I did. This is great. I'm I'm glad the Kraken's here. I'm glad we're we're talking about it. I'm glad I got a book coming out that's going to mention them prominently. And and look, I really hope they succeed. When Seattle sports succeed, believe me, guys like me, guys in my profession, we love it because it makes our lives so much easier, and we get to sell books about them and do all kinds of stuff. Um, Great. And that book coming out, the name of it is? Rising from the Deep. Rising. And I'm not going to say all the other. Uh, <laughs> it's too long to remember, but Rising from the Deep. And uh, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a page turner. Excellent. And you also still write for the Seattle Times as a beat writer for the Kraken and not some other articles as well. And I do until they, until they listen to this podcast. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> They're going to give you a raise. I'm kidding around. No, I've been very, I've been very, uh, <laughs> Very grown up on this thing. So <laughs> we always like to end our uh, end our, end our uh, show on a positive note. Uh, these are our shout outs. So what we'll do is we'll uh, put out there some positive vibes out there to the universe. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and start this off. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my son Vincent, who is uh, uh, it's his birthday tomorrow, and he's. Tr- I'd like to say what age he is, but then I'll start getting depressed about how old I am. So I'm going to move on to Brian, your shout out for for this week. (laughs) Uh, Two quick shout outs. One to my buddy, Brendan. It's also his birthday tomorrow. He's turning 50 years old. So just want to say thanks for being a good buddy and love you very much. And 
quick shout out to your wife, Jeff, for letting you join us tonight and taking time away from your dinner. So tell her thank you. I will. She's standing right outside the door with a big fry pan. She's going to count me on that. <laughs> All right, Jeff, last shout out to you. All right, I'll give a shout out to my brother, Mitch. It's his birthday tomorrow. He's turning two. No, that's just a joke. I, I <laughs> tell him he's two years old. No, he, it's not his birthday. He's a uh, he's a uh, lieutenant with uh, the Vancouver Fire Department. And so they do a very good job. And uh, the Vancouver, B.C. Fire Department, not, Van not Washington. Um, yeah, they do a very good job. So, uh, yeah, just uh, say keep up the good work. Well, awesome. Thank you, Jeff, for being our guest on behalf of Brian the Soul Man Solak and Matthew that damn dirty duck page. And myself, Abraham Deweese, uh, we appreciate you all listening to us this week. Check us out every week here on the Seattle Sports Union Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Pod, well, not Podbean anymore, but <laughs> wherever you can find our RSS feed, we'll be there. Check us out, SeattleSportsUnion.com, as well on Twitter at Seattle Sports U, and like us on Facebook. Some of us are likable, I've heard. See you guys <laughs> next time. <laughs>